And as you're making your way back to your seat and taking the Bible into your hand, would you open to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, and we'll read some verses together from Revelation 22 to sort of set us up into this study, this uh, the series that we have that we're starting this morning and just taking a, a, a break from Galatians. We'll come back to Galatians and finish up in a few weeks. But uh, with this series that we're beginning this morning, reading Revelation chapter 22, starting in verse 6. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Father, thank you for that truth, for that hope that Jesus is coming soon. Father, I pray that as we study your word together that you would be glorified, that our minds and hearts would be comforted, changed, conformed to the image of our great Savior, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Well, this week, someone came to our door and left a little pamphlet. It was actually a 48-page booklet. On the cover, there was a picture, it was a mashup between two buildings. Um, One was the dome of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. The other half was the dome of St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. And so it was this, looked like one dome, but it was cut in half, and they were kind of mashed together. And the picture had lightning bolts flashing all around it against a backdrop of a menacing, cloudy sky. And the title was, 
what is the mark of the beast? Well, I was intrigued. And you're supposed to be, right? That's the point when they drop something like that on your doorstep. And I wasn't intrigued because I needed them to tell me what the mark of the beast is. I wanted to find out what do they think it is. So I read through the little booklet, and I found a little bit of information about where it came from. It was published by uh, Harvest Time Books. It's a publishing arm, apparently, of the Advent Christian General Conference, ACGC. And there's a little church in Chino that had placed their stamp on it and left that booklet. I'm not sure of their connection because I couldn't even find that church listed on the ACGC website, but I read through it. And their claim, simplified and boiled down, is that the Roman Catholic Church, and especially the Pope, is the first beast of Revelation 13 that comes out of the sea. He's the little horn of Daniel 7. He is the Antichrist, according to this little book. Then they claim that the second beast of Revelation 13 that comes out of the earth is the United States of America. Hence the mashup on the cover of St. Peter's Dome and the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. And as part of the evidence for the Pope as Antichrist, they say that if you assign numerical numbers to each of the letters in the official Latin title of the Pope, you get the number 666 which is the number of the beast and the number of man, as Revelation 13 says. And the solution to this problem of the United States and the Pope working together against God is that we all need to start worshiping on Saturday, the Sabbath, and start obeying all the rest of the commands of the Bible. We need to follow the law. The claim in the book is that God gave us His law, therefore we need to obey it. That's the solution. There's nothing about Jesus' perfect work to redeem us. Nothing about how we can be justified before God only by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no gospel. It's just works. Now, as we've been studying Galatians, we've been looking at our own temptations toward either legalism or licentiousness rather than loving God and loving others. And we have not been talking about a middle way, a fence to sit on, and let's try to straddle these two different. No, this is the impossible way of loving obedience to God and service to others, because we're set free from the law in Jesus. We're we're set free from sin, from legalism and license to love God as we've been intended to, and that's why it's freedom rather than bondage to the law and sin. And it's only possible when we have been justified by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and then empowered by the indwelt Holy Spirit within us. We often think, you know, there's just not a lot of people out there that would just come out and say, you have to follow the law. and You have to work your way into God's pleasure. We've talked about some of the ways that we can be tempted to do that in disguised ways, but here is a group that just comes right out and says it. Obey the law. You must obey the law. And this group claims to have about 100,000 members across the world. And they're not counted as a cult. They are counted as Christians. In fact, they're a part of the National Association of Evangelicals. They consider themselves to be evangelical. But let's get back to the, the question on that booklet. What is the mark of the beast? Now, many of us, when we hear that the first beast is the Pope and the second is the USA, we sort of laugh it off, right? Why? Why do we laugh that off? Is it because, well, I've never heard that before. It just seems outlandish. Let's just forget all that. 
Is it because we just don't like that idea? What is it, what would cause us to dismiss such an idea? Now, most of us, I think, we've been coming here for long enough, or you're in a Bible church, so you would probably assume that we would all answer, well, because that's not what the Bible says, right? But if you read the booklet, there are Bible verses in the booklet. And they're not just spread throughout, they are permeating every page. Every page just drips with Scripture references and quotations and allusions and explanations. So, why do we believe what we believe? And what do we believe? We've said consistently that every belief about life and all that the Bible speaks to comes down to two areas. Number one, what you believe about the Bible. And number two, how you understand the Bible. What you believe about the Bible. If you don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, you dismiss it, you come up with something else, right? There's some other religious book, you come up with a panel of people who can tell you what to think and how to act, worldly philosophy, or, or just yourself. You try to figure it out. If you believe, though, that the Bible is God's Word, it is breathed out by Him, inspired, that it's infallible, inerrant, all that it claims for itself, that there's no error in it, then you believe that it is sufficient for our answers, for life, for godliness. Amen. And you believe it's authoritative. Whatever it says, that's the answer. Not what I think, not what someone else thinks. So we won't dismiss it and turn to something else for answers not given in the Bible. When God gives us answers in the Bible, those are the answers. That's what we believe is first, what you believe about the Word of God. But then you move on to number two, how do you understand it? And we've had classes here about how to understand the Bible. But the basic method in three short steps is to read it, right? Observe what it says, and then understand it, interpret it as the original audience was intended to understand it, and then apply it. Learn what it still means today. It doesn't change meaning over time. It still means the same thing, but I need to know what it means so that I can change to align with what it says. And we do these both on our own and together in fellowship, in community, and for accountability. Now, that first step is often agreed upon. If you've gotten through the Bible is the Word of God, well, then I'm going to read it. Okay, that first step of understanding it is agreed upon. The third step is agreed upon. Otherwise, why would we read it? I mean, we're going to read it so we can change in some way. We can do something about what we've read. But it's that second step, that middle step, where there's so much divergence. We talk about how there are people who interpret allegorically or symbolically. People generally can just do whatever they want with the Scriptures, any given text of Scripture, when they believe that they're able to do so. What we try to do is to understand the plain meaning of the text, the literal words on the page. We believe that God said what He meant, that He meant what He said, and we know that God, as the master communicator and inventor of language, can use symbols and figures of speech to communicate literal truth. But as I read this little booklet, it was clear that their middle step, understanding it, uh, uh, interpreting it, was different because they had arrived at an identity that the Bible does not give for who the beasts of Revelation 13 are. They had assumed there was a secret hidden code for the number 666 written in Greek to understand a Latin title for the Pope. And not only that, but because most Protestant churches don't agree with them that you must worship God only on Saturdays as a church, uh, 
Well, they, along with the Roman Catholic Church, were called out as heretical. So it makes you wonder why they would want to be part of the National Association of Evangelicals, or why they would want to be, or how they can be. But specifically regarding the end, I went to the website of this organization, ACGC, and here is a quote from their Declaration of Principles, what they believe. Quote, we believe that Bible prophecy has indicated the approximate time of Christ's return. And comparing its testimony with the signs of our times, we are confident that He is near even at the doors. End quote. So in other words, they've got it all figured out. Everybody's wrong but them. They have the real truth of the Bible. You've got to obey the law and you have to go to church on Saturday. And we know when Jesus is coming back approximately, it all comes back to how they understand the Scriptures how they study the Word of God. Now, the point of this is not to attack the little church in Chino or that organization, ACGC, but to point out the following. First, what you believe, again, as we were just saying, is dependent on what you believe about the Bible and how you study it, how you understand it. And second, how splintering, how divisive it is when we diverge away from what God has actually said. Everything we believe comes down to what we believe about the Bible and how we understand it, and then it is splintering and divisive when we diverge from what God has said. For instance, when you start studying the number 666 and how many different ideas there are out there, you will find many scholars who think, well, actually, it stands for Nero, the Roman Caesar who persecuted Christians, and many take the view that he's going to be resurrected during the last days, the end times. Because, you know, if you transliterate Nero from Greek into Hebrew and then assign numbers to each letter in the Hebrew of Nero, well, then you get the number 666. Other possibilities have been mentioned throughout history. Napoleon, Stalin, Hitler, many more with various gymnastics to arrive at this number 666. What's going on with all this? The answer, again, is in how you understand the Bible. We believe that this is God's Word, the truth, and this is what He wants us to know. And we believe He's given it to us in writing so that it won't be changed by anybody, and also so that we can take our time to study what it says and what it means. Remember 2 Timothy 2.15, to do your best to present yourself as uh, to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The word of God is so deep. It's so broad. It's so wonderful. We will never grasp it all completely and fully. But that's not because God has hidden mysteries and codes in secrets that can only be unlocked by certain people with special knowledge. That, that's an old ancient heresy called Gnosticism, that you've got to have secret knowledge. So in all those attempts to discover the identity of the Antichrist through the Bible, the beast whose name is 666, too many people have gone beyond what God has actually said. They've presumed too much. This is the underlying presumption, and it doesn't sound pretty, but here's what it is. Either that God might somehow have slipped up and given us more than He meant to, and we can figure it out. Or God really wanted us to know, but He thought it would be fun if we played a little game of hide and seek. (laughs) Neither of those sounds like the God of the Bible. Neither of those is is what He does in the Scriptures. For that matter, any attempt to discover what God has not said or specifically said He's not going to tell us, i.e. the timing, the approximate time, 
is at least dangerous and presumptive and at worst heretical, something that can lead us away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Why don't we believe in these claims of certainty that the first beast is the Pope and the second beast is the United States? Why do we not try to identify the name of the beast from the number 666? Why do we not think the Bible has indicated the approximate time of Christ's return? It's for the same reason that we don't fall for any of these claims that microchips can be implanted under our human skin and barcode tattoos are the mark of the beast. Or that the social security number is the mark of the beast. Or that a vaccine is. Or anything that we see today necessarily or definitively is the mark of the beast. Because there's nothing around right now that would make you deny Jesus Christ and begin a worship system of a man or a person, a being on this world. And that if you didn't have it, you couldn't buy or sell. That's what Revelation 13 says. That's what God gives us about the mark of the beast. Now, it's not all that it says, but that's what's given to us, not so that we can try to figure it out ahead of time, but so that we will know for certainty when it happens. This is what the Bible says. This is, this is what God says we need to know. So that's why we don't believe these other claims. Anything more than what God has said, again, is at best speculation. At worst, it's a presumptive assault on God's Word by inserting, removing, or altering it in some way. And we read very clearly the warnings here in Revelation 22 about doing that. We read here in, in Revelation 22, verse 6, John says, these words are trustworthy and true, not man's words that are presumptive and divisive, speculative. Jesus said in verse 16 here, I have sent my angel to testify you about these things for the churches. And I warn everyone who hears the words, the prophecy of this book, don't add or remove. Let's not go beyond what he has said. Let's not come short of what he has said. Let's read what he has said. There's a blessing here even from Jesus in verse 7. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And it's an echo all the way back to the first chapter, the beginning in verse 3 of Revelation. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it for the time is near. This is what's trustworthy. This is what we need to hear. So we believe what God has said in his word about everything, from the beginning to the end and everything in between. We don't believe anything that man is guessing about it because that's all that it is. Now, by now, you're probably wondering what is spurring all of this on. And it's not because somebody dropped a pamphlet on my doorstep. <laughs> but late last year, the nation of Israel was attacked. Four years ago, there was a worldwide pandemic, or at least that's what it was called, there can be more. There are wars happening all over the world. There are rumors of wars happening and maybe starting and coming soon. According to the National Earthquake Information Center, the earth experiences some 20,000 earthquakes every year. It's about 55 a day. Now you wonder, well, how does that stack up with history? According to most experts across the board, they say that's not really any different from what it has been. But that's a whole lot of earthquakes. And we don't really have that much historical data with that level of precision that we have today. But there's earthquakes. There's political upheaval. There are old lines of hatred being redrawn between people and nations. Russia is on the move. The border for the United States seems to be just open. 
You start to see all kinds of things happening. You start to see these things and you notice these things and you start to wonder. You start to think and you, and you see and, and some fear may begin to grow. Some anxiety. What's happening? What is it going to look like? When's it going to happen? What's going to happen? And then you get pamphlets on your doorstep that talk about the end. And you get cults that try to take advantage of this and they try to bring, bring, uh, bring people in and, and just draw us in. You even get Christian teachers with the Bible teaching the end is near. And there's so often so much information that does not match what the Bible says. And then you get steps to be ready that do not match what the Bible says, what's happening. Well, it often leads to two different extremes that are both misguided. The first extreme is everything becomes all about the end all the time. And all I can think about is the end and what this might be and who that might be and what's, what's going to happen next and, and what I'm going to see. The second extreme is I'm sick and tired of hearing about it, <laughs> and I want it to go away. Both of those are, biblically speaking, wrong. Wrong ways of thinking about the end. The pastoral care team here at, at Canyon has been considering for some time how to help us think rightly about the end, the last days, eschatology, the study of last things. We've put together a short series on that topic, so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at what God has said about the end and how to think about it, rather than what so often gets passed off as an end times study, because too often, people start those studies, and what is the end result for those who get wrapped up in it? It all becomes all about the end. I need more information. I need more about this. I want to know what's going to happen to me and to my kids and my grandkids, and I want to find out when it's going to happen, and, and I need that pastor. I need that teacher to tell me and give me his charts and his answers. Because what God gave me in His Word isn't enough. Or again, we get people that say, you know what, I'm just not even going to go to church until that silly study is over because I don't want to hear anything about it. It's too depressing. It's too confusing. It's too divisive. It's too whatever, fill in the blank. We want to help us avoid both of those. And any other ways that we might think wrongly about the last days. So we want to go to the Word, we want to learn or be reminded to think God's thoughts from His Word about the end. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to come up with timelines and charts and things that help us with our memories and with our learning and, and teaching. I'm just talking about the errors that we can make when those things replace God's Word, when they become more important to us than what God has said. So we're going to be looking at different aspects about what it looks like to prepare. What, what should we be looking for? And what, how should we be ready? What should we be doing in light of the end that is coming? The first question that I want to answer this morning, though, is, are we in the last days? And the answer is yes, we are in the last days. But it's not because I say so. And it's not because we think the Bible gives us a coded little hint that says we've got an approximate time of Christ's return. Recent research completed shows that in the United States, of all adults in the U.S., only 39% of adults in the U.S. think that we're in the end times, the last days. 58%, over half of people in the U.S., adults, don't think we are. So it's not popular opinion that says so, that says we're in the last days. Now, interestingly, among evangelicals, 63% say, yes, we're in the last days. Only, only 33% say no. How can we be so sure, though, when there are so many around us that are not sure or don't think we are? The reason that we know we are in the last days is because the Bible says we are. 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, the writer refers to how God has previously spoken by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, in chapter 3, he describes the last days. We talked about these verses last week, that in the last days, people will be lovers of self and lovers of money and proud and abusive, just a whole litany of horrible things that we see rather than lovers of God. And he says, this is what the last days are going to look like. Timothy, avoid such people, as if Timothy were going to be running into these people all along. He had, and so do we. We are in the last days, and we have been. They've been called the last days ever since Jesus came to this earth, lived, died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. This is the last period of life on earth, and it has lasted 2,000 years. The problem for us comes in when we misplace our thoughts about these last days and how to be prepared. So if you will, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, please. When we misplace our thoughts, see, every generation is supposed to see itself as the last one. Every one of us is supposed to be ready all of the time. That's what Jesus told us over and over again. That's what his word tells us over and over again. We are always to be ready. He says, you don't know, you're not going to know, and it's not for you to know when, so be ready. Be ready all the time. Well, the Thessalonian church had misplaced their thoughts about the last days in a similar way that many do today. Many believe the last days means we need to get ready, we need to be alarmed, we've got to be agitated and shaken in mind. That's what the Thessalonians were doing. Not just because they thought the end times were here, but because they thought they missed them. They thought it passed them by. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning right at verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind and alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, let no one deceive you in any way. So it's being deceived that causes us to think wrongly about the day of the Lord, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that deceit comes from something other than the Word of God. We see that here. And it causes us to be quickly shaken in mind. That means agitated about it. That means everything's all about this. That's what's consuming our thoughts. And alarmed, he says here. That's fearful, disturbed. We're terrified about it. So instead of being deceived, which leads to fear and agitation about the end, wh- whether it's been missed or whether it's right here, right now, don't be deceived. He gives some truth here, continuing in verse 3. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains, who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming... The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. 
Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure and unrighteousness. Now, all of that information there that he gives the Thessalonians and all of that information that we now have through this letter is a summary, a condensed little nutshell summary of the end of what's going to be happening. Now, the way that it's been used is as a little enigma machine that we've got to try to pull apart and figure out. You know, God expects us just to try to get this little puzzle and figure out what he doesn't say. And that's not why it was given. It was given so that we would have an overview of the events of the end, that's clear, but not so that we can try to fill in the holes ourselves. That's guessing and speculation and deception, exactly what we're trying to avoid, right? That brings confusion and fear. It was given to set our minds at ease with the truth. Rather than being shaken in mind and alarmed, rather than being deceived, rest in this truth. Think rightly about the end. Who wins? Jesus, by the breath of his mouth, by the appearance of his coming. The things that will happen are going to be beyond us. All power of Satan and the wisdom and the deception, all that, it's going to be bigger than us and more powerful than us, but not beyond Jesus. Okay, so what? What does this mean? What should we be thinking about then? Well, it's the opposite of those who are perishing, who refuse to love the truth and be saved. We will love the truth and be saved. Our focus in light of this truth about the end in verses 13 to 15 is the gospel. Verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, in light of this truth about the end, our minds think rightly about it when we're not agitated and alarmed and deceived, not when we're worried about whether it's going to be right now or whether we missed it, but when we consider this through the gospel of Jesus Christ. To think rightly about the last days, the end, we must consider the gospel as the center. Then our minds are filled with the truth. Then we don't fear the end, we won't grow anxious, and we'll never get tired of hearing about it. (laughs) And as we immerse ourselves in the gospel because of these last days, what should our life look like? Should we try to figure out how to survive when things get really bad? Should we start digging our bunkers? Verse 15, so then brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. What are our actions going to be? As we sang this morning, standing firm. Holding to the word of God. That's what it looks like to think rightly and to live rightly in view of the gospel in these last days. And it's exactly what we've been told all along by Jesus and by the entire rest of the New Testament here. Is that going to cause alarm or fear or anxiety? Is it going to be confusing? Is this depressing? Look at verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, the God and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Do you hear the words that Paul uses about this consideration about the end The words he's using are love, eternal comfort, good hope, grace, 
comfort for our hearts, establishment in every good work and word? Do you, see, do you hear and see the difference between how many of us have been taught to think about the end and how the Bible instructs us to think about the end? There's no fear about it, and there's no sick of hearing about it. There's hope, and there's comfort because of Jesus, because of the gospel. There's a holding fast to his word, and because we're doing those things, there is good work and word. There is holiness at work in us. That's the outcome. That's the result when we stand rightly on the word of God, considering the end. And we could do this with every mention of the last days, the end in the Scriptures. We won't because of time, but let's look at 1 John chapter 2. Let's just look at another example of what this looks like, how it works out in the Word of God, and how God gives to us information about the end so that we will not fret, be fearful, anxious, worry, or tired of hearing about it. 1 John 2. Now, we'll start reading in verse 15, but here's what we're told. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Your thoughts, your affections, your desires, the things that you want should not be placed here on the earth. Your heart doesn't belong here, but on God. Why? Because this is all going to pass away. Now, that spurs his mind about the end, only he doesn't say, you need to know this about the last days. Here's how he refers to this time in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. All right, so our love for the world is the opposite of love for the Father because everything that's here is not from Him, it's from the world. It's all going to pass away. And it's close to happening because He says this is the last hour. Again, we've been close for 2,000 years, right? And in God's timing, I mean, a, a thousand years is like a day to Him, right? It's only been a couple days. <laughs> he knows how long it's been for us, but it's close. The end is near. And we know that because Christ came, and ever since He came, there is an antichrist coming. But even more revealing to us right here, right now, is that there are many antichrists who have come. So it's important to know that the antichrist is coming, but it's even more urgent for us to realize that we are in the last hour because of all of the antichrists that are here. That's why we know we're in the last hour. So yes, watch out for the Antichrist, but watch out also for all of the Antichrists. Why? Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Again, there's that division that happens when we get away from the Word of God, when we're anti Christ, when we're anti the Word of God, we are separated, we bring division. That's what happened there. Verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. We have the truth. We have the knowledge. What specifically, what specific truth is he talking about? It's the gospel again. Verse 20, 
Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Do you hear it again? The right way to think about the end and and the last hour truth that we're given is through the gospel. It's in the gospel that we hear that we have from the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ that comes from the Father. It's his promise to us of eternal life. And that's what we hear. That's what we abide in. We stay there in it. We don't try to move on past that. And think of those who who think wrongly about all of this. They've departed from us because wrong thinking about the gospel, wrong thinking about the end brings division. It brings separation. But what about us who abide in the truth? Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. Because we have it. It's here already. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, this isn't, this part, it it looks like a command here in the ESV, but it's not a command. This is an indicative statement. You abide in him. The command is in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. We already are in him, but keep yourself there. Not because you're dependent on keeping yourself in your own salvation, but we can let ourselves, our minds wander. We can wonder and grow in fear. No, keep yourselves here in him. Why? So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so again, we have everything we need in the word. We don't need some other teaching. He says, you don't need any of that other teaching. You have what you need right here. It's true. Abide in this. Stay in this. What God has given is true. It is no lie. So stay here. And when we do, we have confidence. That's what he says. We have confidence. And we have a growth of righteousness that happens. See, when we consider the context of the passages about the last days, the last hour, we can see rightly what God says about it and what we should think about it. It shows us how to think and what to remember and how to live because of all of these things. So often, we think about the final events of the last days and we take an earthly perspective, right? We, we want to know what's happening here. What, what comes first? What comes second? What's next? What's going to happen to me and my, my children and my grandchildren, my family, my friends? What should I do when things all start to fall apart? And what we should be doing is taking that heavenly perspective. I know what God has said. I know what's going to happen. What he's told me that I need to know, all of this is going to pass away. Either in death when God calls me home or when he calls me home to meet the Lord in the air, I know that he is perfect and he is good He's wise and he's sovereign and he is pure and he is righteous. He's always going to do what's good and what's right. I'm in his hands. He's going to provide for me. He's going to protect me. He's going to save me. Even if I'm not saved physically from from death, even if I'm not saved from persecution, he's saving me through that. He's going to bring me home. And it's because of Jesus that this is all true. It's because of who Jesus is. It's because of what he did to save me, to save you That's what we need to think about. 
One more place to turn to. We'll just read Titus chapter 2 so we can see again. I said we'd only look at one more, 1 John, but we can read these verses together and we can see the greatness of God's grace to us in the gospel in light of the end. In Titus 2 verse 11, Paul writes to, to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, past tense, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God's grace came in the past, in Jesus. It affects us in the present, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the future. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And it's so important that Titus get this message out, that Paul said this in verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Don't disregard these things. Don't look at the end times as a terrifying time of unknowns and and scary things that are going to be happening. God tells us what's going to happen, all that we need to know. He tells us so that we'll watch. When Jesus talks about the end, whether in person in the Gospels or throughout the New Testament epistles, there is hope. There is readiness through belief in Him. It's not in the form of try to figure out how to survive this thing. Because nobody does. It's not try to figure out when this is going to happen. Nobody knows when. It's turned to Jesus. It's hope in Jesus. It's because of Jesus that we have comfort and hope and encouragement and a growing love and a growing righteousness and holiness all according to his will. That's what we're after in this study about the end. So our application, if, if you'll take this as application, what do we take from this? Well, Turn to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, there is an end coming. There is judgment coming. But in Jesus, we can escape that judgment. We can can be conformed to his image so that we stand on his word. We believe what he said. We abide in that. And then we can rest in Jesus. And we have comfort and we have hope. We look forward to his return. We want it to happen. So we don't fear it and we don't ignore it and avoid it. Father, we pray to you, the great God of the universe, because, Lord, you are the only true and living God. God, in all your ways, you are perfect. You are pure and holy. God, in all of our ways, in our being, we fall short. Lord, we transgress, we commit iniquity, we sin, we rebel. God, our flesh does not want to obey or love you. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ who came and did all things well, who was perfect and is perfect. Father, that he took our sins from us on the cross. He took our place under your wrath, Father, and died to save us. And God, then he rose to conquer our sin and death, the consequence of our sin. Father, we praise you for the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the end that is coming because of the gospel that you have saved us. 
Lord God, we pray that you would help us to get this message out to others around us because we know you've told us we are in the last days, we're in the last hour. If other people need to hear, they need to know. Lord, give us a heart of compassion for people, that we would love them and speak to them the truth in love, Lord, that they would know. God, that we would be reminded every day so that we would not grow in fear, that we'd not grow agitated or alarmed in our minds, and Lord, that we would not ignore or or pretend like there isn't an end coming. Lord, help us to look forward to anticipate the great day of our Lord, His coming, His revealing, His appearing. Father, that is a great, awesome event that we look forward to. And God, it gives us comfort and hope because we are saved in Him already. Father, we praise you. We lift up the great name of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask all of this in his perfect, precious, holy name. Amen.